0: Thank you, guys. Friends, let's open in our Bibles to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1. We just finished the book of Jeremiah last week, and now we're going to begin a new series in the book of Ephesians, which is one of my favorite books in the Bible. I realize I say that every time we start a new series, so it's beginning to lose its power, but I really, really love the book of Ephesians, and I'm going to read the first two verses of that book for us this morning. Hear now God's word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, if grace and peace reign in this place and reign in this city, through God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, the war is won. We celebrate the resurrection and the fruit that it has yielded. And we are testaments, we are banners to what we've experienced of the glory of God in Christ and the glory of the God in the church. Would you do that in our midst, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be talking a little bit today about Paul's ministry in Ephesus. That's the church plant that he's writing this book to to, um, as we're going to begin to study. And we need to understand that some dark terror occurred in Paul's life and ministry when he worked in the city of Ephesus. We don't know what it is. We don't get details about it, but we know that something happened to Paul that made him despair in Ephesus of life itself. We're going to talk about that in a few moments. It's surprising to hear that. Because the story of the church plant in Ephesus is one of the best in the Bible. This is my favorite church plant story of all. You can read about it in Acts chapters 19 and 20. Paul spends three years in Ephesus, which is the longest time he had spent anywhere in his ministry. And alongside his co-workers, we see incredible things that happen in Ephesus. You've got conversions and baptisms and exorcisms and healings and teaching. You have elders that are ordained. You have a church that's thriving before Paul leaves at the end of this two and a half year, three year stay. You have beautiful, beautiful stuff. This was Paul's kind of strategy. He would get up in the morning and he would work as a tent maker. That's how he supported himself. And then when everybody in Ephesus would cut out in the middle of the day during the heat of the day for lunch and to rest, he rented Tyrannus Hall and he would go there and he would teach the scriptures to anybody who would come. So people would come on their lunch break, they would hear the gospel, they'd return to work at about 4 p.m. Paul would go back to work and he would resume his work for the rest of the day. Really incredible things happened as people began to be converted in Ephesus. We know that uh, Ephesus was home to a temple to Artemis. It was one of the seven great wonders of the ancient world. Witchcraft and magic was widespread in Ephesus. But as people began to be converted, in one scene they bring their magic books and burn them at their conversion. They are so infatuated with the person of Christ. They deny the magic that they had come from. They burn books to the tune of thousands upon thousands of dollars, and they begin to impair the trade of gods of Artemis. That, that makes the silversmiths, those who made these idols, furious, and they set a riot throughout Ephesus because the church is beginning to take business away from idolatry. That happens in Ephesus, and it is absolutely incredible. Well, Ephesus is also where church multiplication really gets underway. I love to slip in CPC's vision, which is to be disciple-making disciples in a church-planting church, and we see that preeminently in Ephesus. We want to be that way because the Ephesian church was that way. This was a church that saw disciples made and in turn planted new churches. Now get this, you're not going to believe this, but we believe, scholars believe, that all seven churches addressed in the book of Revelation were planted in and around Ephesus at this time. It was an incredible season of conversions and church multiplication. Lord, would you give us a drop of the spirit that was here with Paul and his friends in Ephesus. So if all this good stuff was happening, if we see all this fruit, if we see all this multiplication, why do we say that there was some dark terror in Paul's life? What, what could have been going wrong in Paul's life when all his ministry was going right? We know that something was wrong because Paul confides in his other church plant, plant in Corinth at this time. So we know that Paul planted Corinth. He was there for 18 months and then he left and he swung by Ephesus but went to Jerusalem and came back to Ephesus. And while he's there, he writes letters to and visits Corinth, which was just across the Aegean Sea from where he was he gives us two clues as to what was happening to him during this time in Ephesus. The first one, we read in his first letter to Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 30 through 32. So Paul is in Ephesus, he's doing all this incredibly minis- incredible ministry, but he writes a letter to Corinth, and this is what he says. Why am I in danger every hour? I die daily. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? That's Paul sitting alone, writing a letter to Corinth. I die daily. Have you ever had a ministry that feels a little less like whispering sweet somethings about Jesus in your friend's ears, and a little more like fighting with beasts and dying daily? Ministry can be like that. Parenting can be like that. Leading a life group can be like that. Starting a new outreach can be like that. Now, remember the context of of Paul writing this in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is his beautiful, incredible defense of the resurrection, that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead in his body, and because of that, we will rise with him as well. If that's not the case, if that's not true, life is meaningless. If there is no resurrection from the dead, if this life we lead and this ministry that we do and this taking up our cross and following Jesus does not ultimately lead to us meeting that same Jesus risen in the body face to face for all eternity, Paul says Christians are to be most pitied. I pity you, Christian, for all the money you gave away for all the forgiveness you gave one to another, for all the ways you've served other people, if there is no resurrection from the dead, I pity your service to Christ. Paul, in that same vein, says, if there is no resurrection, and when I die, I simply cease to exist, I swear to you, I would not be in Ephesus. I swear to you, there are a million places I'd rather be than sitting right here in Ephesus. Something plagued Paul. Something grieved Paul more than we read in Acts 19 through 20, and we're starting to get the picture. Shiny ministries, shiny families, shiny faces on Monday morning are not always pure gold behind the glitter are life and death battles with the devil and with the flesh. That's our first clue. It's a pretty big one that not all was shiny and shimmery in Ephesus when Paul was there. Here's our second clue. It'd be enough to have the first, but sometime later, he's either still in Ephesus or he's just left Ephesus. He writes the letter of 2 Corinthians, and he really writes this letter in his own Grief a Greek scholar pointed out to me that second Corinthians is paul 's most difficult letter to translate. I say he pointed out a Greek scholar pointed that out to me I mean I read that in a book, and I understood that, but sometimes I mix authors and friends, but anyway, together, he and I in my room alone, he pointed out to me that this was hard to translate because it's kind of stunted and mixed up and has run on sentences and it's a little bit goofy. In fact, you can kind of get the impression of that as you read 2 Corinthians chapter 1 in English. Just listen to this for a minute. God of all comfort, who comforts us so that we may comfort with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort. And that's not even all the comforts in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. It is inspired by the Holy Spirit, but it is real, and it is raw, and it is sloppy. It needs to be tightened up a bit. Well, Paul, while he's kind of stumbling through the God of all comfort, he takes a deep breath, and he writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia, that is, in Ephesus. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Now imagine if a friend came to you this week and she said, I'm despairing of life itself. What would you think about that person? What would you think about their state of mind? It sounds like deep, dark depression and even suicidal thoughts. Just because the Apostle Paul was the greatest church planter to ever live does not mean he floated through his ministry in ethereal bliss. Things were so dark in Ephesus... He despaired of life itself. Now, it drives me crazy that we don't know exactly what that came from. Luke doesn't tell us for whatever reason in Acts 19 through 20. Paul doesn't reference that in this letter to the Ephesians, which is also going to be spread around to other churches. We don't know if there was another prison sentence we hadn't heard about that happened in Ephesus after the riot or some kind of persecution. We don't know if the trouble chiefly came from outside the church or inside the church. The only thing we have from these two letters is that whatever this was, it was really, really, really bad in Paul's life. And knowing that background makes us sit up and listen when we open the letter to the Ephesians. Knowing what Paul experienced in Ephesus makes us sit up and listen to what Paul writes to Ephesus. Paul's opening a very dark chapter in his life when seven years later in prison in Rome he is writing to the Ephesians knowing what we know about him what would he say to them? These are blood-bought, battle-tested, despair-lifting words That, Paul writes, every word in Ephesians is earned. Every word in Ephesians is fought for. Every word in Ephesians comes from the inspired mouth of a man who has banked his life, his career, and his soul on the person he reveals within this letter. You know that about the apostle, and you're ready to sit up and listen. The introduction is not throw away small talk before we get to the meat of the conversation. These are blood-bought words that Paul writes. With that in mind, can I read these first two verses again? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. Paul teases us with two themes here that we're going to trace for the rest of our study in this letter. There are two things that are going to come through loud and clear as we study the book of Ephesians. The first is the glory of God in Christ the glory of God in Christ, and the second is like it, the glory of God in the church. The glory of God in Christ, the glory of God in the church. Let's look at the first one very briefly. The glory of God in Christ. God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, his Son, are named five times in two verses. The reason Paul does that is because he wants to set the pace for the letter. This is what we're going to be hearing. This is what we're going to be experiencing. The triune God will stand front and center for the rest of the book. Ephesians is a God besotted letter, it is infatuated with the grandeur, the joy, the pleasure of the person of God and his son and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We will never veer away from this theme. And so when Paul says in verse 1 that he's an apostle by the will of God, knowing what we know about Paul in Ephesus, the beast, the tears, the despair, we hear Paul loud and clear. I would not be here were it not for the eternal purpose of God in my life. I wouldn't have made it out of the city of Ephesus if it were not for the will of God. And the first thing you need to know about me as an apostle is that you need to know about the God who sent me, God the Father himself who stands over all things. Nothing will thwart the purpose and the power of God. It is eternal. It transcends all things. Not sin, not the devil, not stupidity, not depressed suicidal apostles, not even death itself will thwart the eternal purpose of God. God stands at the center of everything I do and everything I'm about to say to this church. Not only can nothing challenge his power, nothing can challenge God's grace and peace that he extends to us. Verse 2, grace and peace to you from God and from Jesus. If God really stands at the center, if Jesus really wins the day in his bodily resurrection, there will be grace and peace as far as the curse is found. And wherever we see it, whether it's on those mountaintop experiences of conversions and church plants, or it's in the valley of the shadow of death where we despair of life itself, wherever we taste grace, wherever we feel peace, we think of Paul's words in Ephesians and we say, God in Christ Has done this. God and Christ has won this. This is mine in Christ. Missing the glory of God in the book of Ephesians is like missing the sun on a South Carolina summer day. It's right there, it's burning your eyeballs, it stands in front of us. You miss this, you miss the glory of God in Christ and humanly speaking, you have missed the entire book. There's nothing else to say. But if God in his spirit opens our minds and hearts to behold afresh the glory of God preeminently in his son Jesus, you gain the book and the world as well. You will see God You will see his glory. You will see it in his son Jesus as we read the book of Ephesians. The glory of God in Christ. The second is like it. We're going to see the glory of God in the church. We know that because Paul addresses the saints who are in Ephesus, which is to say the church that meets in Ephesus and the churches now that meet around Ephesus that have been planted through her. Now, let me ask you a question as we think about the second point. We think about the glory of God in the church. Let me ask you this. What are some words that come to mind when you hear the word church? What are some of the first things that pop into your mind? And let me make it more controversial. What are some of the first things that pop into your mind when you hear the phrase, the American church? Where does your mind go? Where does your heart go? What do you think about? I can think a bunch of words, but I can't say most of them in mixed company. I've got some words swirling about in my mind, and here's a few. Dead, dry, apathetic, materialistic, uh, adulterous, visionless, passive. I mean, a bunch of words come to my mind when I just look over the landscape of the American church. The book of Ephesians comes behind me and it says, I want you to be very careful what you're talking about right now. Honest critique of the American church, it has its place, right? We want to, as an American church, grow and change, whether we're talking about our local church or the church in this city or the church in this country, we want to grow, we want to change, and that begins in some part with honest critique about the church, and that's okay, Although experience has shown many of us that oftentimes the best critiques start with ourselves and the way we ourselves, as American believers, are going to change and participate in the American church our, itself. But the reason I say be careful about your critique is that God says in Ephesians, The church is my wife, she's my bride. I love her, I cherish her, and as far as you're concerned and the devil is concerned, I hold absolutely nothing against her. Wow, that's a different perspective. If God is as good a husband as I am, and there's reason to believe that he is a million fold over, then he would say to me, alongside me, what I would say about my wife. Yes, I've got some things to challenge my wife on, and and I will do that as God gives grace. But if you, an outsider, comes up in here with accusations about my wife that are not bathed in truth and in love, you and I are going to have a very different conversation. I don't want to embarrass you in front of your friends. I want you to be very careful about how you talk about my wife. I mean, that's essentially what God is saying in Ephesians. This is remotely on topic, but one of my kids' favorite stories about my maternal grandfather, my mom's dad, is the time that he spanked a grown man. That's a great story. I mean, that's my favorite story about him, too. And truly, this is a true story. My grandfather had loaded my mom, she was just an infant, in the car, and he went inside to get something, and my neighbor backed out of his driveway and tapped my grandfather's car, and he bounded down the front steps, pulled off his belt, bent the man over his knee, and spanked his neighbor, a grown man. Isn't that incredible? That is the blood that flows in my veins. (laughs) You got a word to say about my wife? You better be very, very careful how you say that, because I bet it's been a long time since you've had a spanking. And we can do that. In the book of Ephesians, God is proud of his church. Can you imagine that? God is proud of his church. Yes, like a husband, he has things to challenge her on, and we'll read those challenges. But like a husband... He shows her off. The church is beautiful to him. The church is a treasure to him. And the book of Ephesians is going to add some new words to our vocabulary as we think about Columbia Presbyterian Church, as we think about the church in America, as we think about the church worldwide. Listen to these words. Beloved, the head of all things, The manifold wisdom of God. Sanctified, cleansed, without spot or wrinkle. Christian, behold the glory of God in the church. Because Christian, behold the glory of God in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, open our eyes. We have such dim, dull visions of you and of your son and of your bride. We, we navel gaze. Our eyes are to the ground in complaint. But if we would look up, there is so much to be grateful for, for who you are and what you have done and what you are doing in your bride, the church. Would you change us? Would you grow us? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.